This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class. From HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And Dablina and I are continuing on with our Olympic series. And when I first started thinking, all right, we're going to cover some sports Olympics history for this 2012 Olympic Games, I've been thinking about a podcast on African-American track star Jesse Owens, who, of course, won four gold medals in the 1936 Berlin Games and very famously proved that Hitler's ideas of Aryan superiority were just plain wrong. But Owens' story is so personally compelling. It's the main thing that most folks, I think, have taken away from the 1936 games. It's what it's what you think of if you're thinking of the Berlin Olympics. And if you look up a clip of Owens flying past his competitors or standing proudly for the national anthem, it seems really easy to believe that the 36 games must have just been a complete failure for the Nazis and a huge embarrassment for Hitler. Yeah, but once you start reading more about the Berlin Games, which are sometimes called the Nazi Olympics, you realize that that's not really the case. What's often overlooked is how successful the games were in terms of Nazi propaganda. For example, they bolstered German pride. They threw off the suspicions of the international community, at least temporarily, and in a more long-lasting way and a way less tied up with the war to come, they shaped the modern Olympic Games. Frank DeFord, Sports Illustrated writer and NPR commentator, calls them, quote, the most fascinating and historically influential games. And Frank DeFord knows the sports, too, so that's a, a pretty high statement. So today we're going to be looking at both Jesse Owens' story and the story of the 1936 games as a whole. The boycotts, the propaganda, the smoke and mirrors, the athletes, whether they were African-American or German-Jewish. And one thing to just, just consider before we even get into this is, why was the United States there? Why was Great Britain or France there? And it's something that we're going to be discussing throughout the podcast. So first, let's start out with the initial irony of the story, which was the International Olympic Game Committee awarded Berlin the Games in 1931 as a sign of acceptance. Uh, it's a, it was a welcome back in a way to the Post-World international War community. I. Right. Uh, the second irony here 
Hitler, who became chancellor two years after this decision, wasn't really interested in the Olympics at all at first. No, and, and today, because Hitler's reputation is so tied up to pageantry and these mass public displays, uh, think Lenny Riefenstahl, her films, it seems odd that Hitler wouldn't have immediately seen the games as an opportunity for a grand public show. But according to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, he initially just didn't see the appeal of the Olympic vision. And that makes sense, too. After all, it's about internationalism. It's about fair competition. It's something that's meant to promote peace between nations. You can you can see how Hitler wouldn't be into that. But Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's minister of propaganda, ultimately convinced him that the games would make great propaganda and prepare German youth for war. As Goebbels himself said in 33, German sport has only one task, to strengthen the character of the German people, imbuing it with the fighting spirit and steadfast camaraderie necessary in the struggle for its existence. That doesn't make you want to, like, break out the ball and play a game or something, No, it takes some of the fun out of it, I think. But right from the start, the Nazis controlled the games. The German Olympic Committee was supervised by the Reich Sports Office, and a new stadium was built in Berlin. Colorful posters drew comparisons between ancient Greece and modern Germany and featured Aryan ideal athletes. So it was a very political thing right from the start. But to make that Aryan ideal that they were glorifying on the posters a reality for the Berlin Olympics, Jewish athletes, of course, had to be excluded from competition. And Hitler's anti-Semitic policies, which started as soon as he assumed power, also extended to sports right from the start. And one very high-level example of this was the high jumper Gretel Bergman, who found herself kicked out of her athletic club in 1933. She was a star athlete, participated in lots of different sports, and had been linked to this athletic club for years. Immediately kicked out, she started training with a club under the Jewish Association of War Veterans with a lot of other Jewish athletes as well as gypsy athletes. Um, But in many cases, these alternate groups for, for Jewish athletes to practice and compete in just didn't have as good equipment, didn't have as good facilities. They were subpar. Yeah, and ultimately Bergman was strung along until just before the games when she was ultimately thrown off the team. The international sports community caught on to that discrimination, though, and talks started focusing on relocating the games, perhaps. The president of the American Olympic Committee, Avery Brundage, even said that, quote, the very foundation of the modern Olympic revival will be undermined if individual countries are allowed to restrict participation by reason of class, creed or race. So that takes a pretty strong stance on this. This is not about your politics. It's about an international sporting event. But unfortunately, Brundage had a bit too much sway in this matter because in 1934, with a position like that out there, he was invited to Berlin to investigate the situation for himself. And in a tightly managed visit, you know, only seeing exactly what people wanted him to see, he inspected facilities, met with athletes, and came home convinced that Jewish athletes weren't being discriminated against after all, that that things were going to be fine in Germany and that Berlin should certainly go ahead with the game. Yeah, but not everyone was so convinced. Many American newspapers, for example, called for a boycott. Much of the Jewish community was in favor of skipping the games, as were many U.S. Catholic leaders. One of the most prominent was Judge Jeremiah Mahoney, who was president of the Amateur Athletic Union, and he argued 
argued that Germany was violating key Olympic rules and that attending the Games would basically endorse the Reich, something that became more and more evident when the Nuremberg Laws were announced in 1935, stripping Jews of citizenship. So it wasn't. It was clearly not just about athletes yeah, here it anymore. A, it was a statement about the whole regime, about the whole country at this point. But by December 1935, after a campaign from Brundage suggesting as far as uh, the boycott being part of a Jewish communist conspiracy, quote, that's that's how far he 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 took this. The Amateur Athletic Union finally voted down a boycott. And I find it interesting that people up until the very end saw it both ways. Brundage, for instance, believed that the boycott was politicizing the games and the games were not something meant to be political. Those in favor of the boycott, though, really saw the games themselves as political. And that was the problem. Um, So, for example, a month before the Amateur Athletic Union vote, the Committee on Fair Play in Sports said, quote, sport is prostituted when sport loses its independent and democratic character and becomes a political institution. Nazi Germany is endeavoring to use the 11th Olympiad to serve the necessities and interests of the Nazi regime rather than the Olympic ideals. So Um, strong feelings both ways. Very strong feelings. The American Athletic Union's vote kind of set the tone internationally as well. Though there had been boycott interest in France and Great Britain and Sweden, the Netherlands and Czechoslovakia, nothing had panned out. A few alternative games were planned, one on Long Island, one in Barcelona, but these had to be canceled because of the, or the one in Barcelona at least had to be canceled because of the Spanish Civil War. But individual athletes could, of of course, still boycott the games if they chose to. So several Jewish American athletes did so, including much of the Long Island University basketball team, considered one of the best teams in the country at the time, plus sprinters from Tulane and Harvard. There's, um, we already mentioned the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum site. They have a lot of interviews with athletes, uh, American athletes and German athletes. And one is with sprinter Milton Green, who was the captain of the Harvard team. And he decided to boycott after his rabbi called him called him in to tell him all about what was happening to Jews in Germany and he felt like this was the right thing to do and he talked about how surprised he was that his decision to boycott, he thought it would be a big deal. He was one of the best runners in the country. It didn't really resonate with anybody. Nobody really was even aware that he had chosen to boycott. And he talked also about how every Olympics that he had watched since then, he would picture himself competing in his familiar events, missing that chance, not really feeling bad or regretful about what he'd done, but just sort of wondering what could have been, too, it seemed. Well, missing that chance and then on top of it feeling like nobody was really paying attention, I'm sure, is like twice as heartbreaking. But the African-American community, however, had a very different take on this boycott. They saw it as hypocritical since for many blacks in the U.S., the idea of separate and unequal sporting opportunities was pretty much old news. There was a quote in the Philadelphia Tribune right before the Amateur Athletic Union vote that went, quote, the Amateur Athletic Union shouts against the cruelties of the other nations and the brutalities in foreign climates, but conveniently forgets the things that sit on its own doorstep. And plus, there was sort of an indication of what was going to happen if black athletes were allowed to go. Black victories would show people just how wrong that Aryan ideal was. 18 black Olympians ended up competing on the U.S. team and 10 medaled. So it was worth it for them to not 
Don boycott. And and something to that sort of ties into that, Jesse Owens' victory was expected, or some of his victories were expected. You know, he was the fastest runner in the country, and a lot of these other athletes were clear shoe-ins for, for these competitions. So, yeah, the, the black community knew if these guys were allowed to compete, they they had a very high chance of winning. Ultimately, though, you know, despite these um, these attempts to boycott, despite these individual boycotts, 49 nations chose to attend the Games. But we need to talk a little bit about what the Games were like. Why were they the Nazi Olympics? And uh, one thing to get out there is, by all accounts, they were incredibly impressive in every way. The athletes competing were dazzled, and that was that was part of the point. Impress the athletes. They'll go home with a positive experience in the games. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it. And I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's Dave. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there, too. So just some examples of what made these games so impressive. The 49 countries that attended, that was more countries than had ever participated before. The opening ceremonies also featured, for the first time, the lone runner carrying a torch that was lit in Olympia. And the games were televised for the first time. You could visit these viewing stations throughout Berlin to watch. Zeppelin's race newsreels around Europe for updated coverage. Lenny Riefenstahl filmed the games for the movie Olympia, which was released in 1938. And the German people were actually very welcoming. Uh, Marty Glickman, a Jewish-American athlete who chose not to boycott, called it all a carnival, though. 
So, of course, a lot of the success or the perceived success from uh, the games was from what was concealed rather than what was promoted. So swastikas were bedecking all of the arenas and monuments, but a lot of the anti-Semitic signs had come down around Berlin, at least on the heavily trafficked streets. 800 gypsies had been moved to a camp on the outskirts of town. And just 18 miles north of Berlin, the Sachsenhausen concentration camp was actually under construction during the games. I think I find this part maybe the most extraordinary aspect of this, that it was so close by. Uh, Within months, too, of the closing ceremonies, that concentration camp was open, began accepting Jehovah's Witnesses and political opponents. So they were carrying on, (laughs) just not so overtly and in Berlin. Goebbels was acutely aware of what needed to be hidden or avoided here. In the Pink Triangle episode, we talked about how Himmler was instructed to, quote, clean up the town before visitors arrived, but under no circumstances arrest gay foreigners under paragraph 175. So they hid that part of their policy during that time because they knew how people would view it. The same idea extended to the press. The Reich press chamber controlled all coverage and forbade stories focused on race or religion. So a quote from July 1936, the racial point of view should not be used in any way in reporting sports results. Above all, Negroes should not be insensitively reported. Negroes are American citizens and must be treated with respect as Americans. So don't publish anything that's going to get get the, the whole country into trouble. That dictate, though, specifically regarding African Americans, proved impossible for the German press to maintain, though, after the stunning success of the black members of the U.S. track team. The pro-Nazi paper called The Attack just couldn't resist calling calling the black members of the team, quote, auxiliaries. But to the rest of the world, and including the German public, we gotta got to say that, the talent of the track team was really captivating, and Owens especially was a star. People were interested in, in reading about them, even if pro-Nazi papers were calling them auxiliaries. So we've got to talk about the Owens story a little bit, just because he is the main figure of this games. And um, his, his background makes his accomplishments all the more impressive. He was born in 1913. He was the son of a sharecropper and the grandson of slaves, born in Danville, Alabama. He he moved to Cleveland when he was nine years old. Interestingly, his name was not, his given name was not Jesse. It was a nickname. He um, told the teacher his initials, which were JC, and in his Alabama accent, she mistook it for Jesse and, and it stuck. Yeah, you got to be careful of those accents when you're from the <laughs> South. We know that. But he started racing at 13, and by his sophomore year of college at Ohio State, Jesse broke five world records and equaled a sixth in 45 minutes at his first Big Ten championship with an injured back. He had been uh, horsing around or wrestling with some of his fraternity brothers and couldn't even get dressed by himself, but he was able to break five world records. According to his New York Times obituary, the Big Ten commissioner, Tug Wilson, said, quote, he is a floating wonder, just like he had wings. So, and we alluded to this earlier, clearly Jesse Owens was a favorite in the Berlin games with that record he had set at the Big Ten uh, 
competition just a year before. And he really did deliver. He won the gold in the 100 meter, the 200 meter, the 400 meter relay and the broad jump, which is now called the long jump. And those last two events are especially notable. The 400 meter relay, because Owens and his fellow black American teammate, Ralph Metcalf, were not supposed to compete in it at all. There were two American Jewish athletes, Marty Glickman, who we quoted earlier, and Sam Stoller. They were pulled out at the last minute by Avery Brundage. And it's possible that Owens and Metcalf were substituted because they were the team's fastest sprinters. But it's also possible that Glickman and Stoller were pulled out because they were Jewish. And Brundage may not have wanted to offend Hitler with a Jewish victory. The other event, the broad jump, is really notable because Owens was coached on and encouraged by his top German competitor, Lutz Long. Footage of Long rushing to congratulate and hug Owens really contrasts with the more familiar scenes of Hitler watching Owens' victories disapprovingly. And Long and Owens stayed friends until Long's death in action at the Allied invasion of Sicily. Owens later said, quote, It took a lot of courage for him to befriend me in front of Hitler. You can melt down all the medals and cups I have, and they wouldn't be a plating on the 24-karat friendship that I felt for Lutz Long at that moment. Hitler must have gone crazy watching us embrace. And I would urge you guys, if you're going to look up one video clip from this Olympics, that's the one to to see if you sort of want a, a more stirring, heartwarming sort of Olympic moment. So the American press loved the long Owens friendship as much as as we do still, but they also devoted a lot of coverage to the fact that Hitler didn't shake Owens's hand. It was considered a huge snub at the time, even though it's kind of more of a myth than truth. In reality, Hitler had already been taken to task by the IOC the very first day of competition for leaving after all of the German competitors had been eliminated in the final round for that day. He had only took the hands of a few athletes. All of them were either German or Finnish. And the IOC basically said, please don't do that. Either shake everybody's hands or shake no one's hands. He decided to shake nobody's hand publicly. And Owens himself later said, kind of um, not directly challenging this myth that had been built up about the handshake, but he said, quote, it was all right with me. I didn't go to Berlin to shake hands with him anyway. All I know is that I'm here now and Hitler isn't. Hi, everybody. My name is Max Homa. And I'm Shane Bacon, and we want to tell you about our new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. I'm a PGA Tour champion and a guy that has dreamed his whole life to be on the largest stage, compete in the biggest events, and have a chance at making history in a sport that has been a bit of a roller coaster for me as a professional. I know the only reason you chase this dream of being a pro is you could one day become a crossover media darling. You, too, could be a co-host of a podcast. And that dream is now a reality. Max and I will take you through life on the PGA Tour, and our goal is to allow you in as we both pay our respective rents and bills from this silly sport that we can't help but love. So do us a favor. Download and subscribe to Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. It's our opportunity to bring to life the conversations we are already having, the rants and tangents we will tackle, and the best and worst parts of being a professional golfer. Way more best parts, bro. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
The bigger issue for Owens, though, really, and a lot of the African-American athletes, wasn't that Hitler didn't acknowledge them. That was just a, a temporary issue. It was that they weren't acknowledged back home. None of the black medalists were invited to the White House or congratulated by President Roosevelt, according to Smithsonian Magazine. And um, a lot of the less famous ones just kind of had to end up slipping into obscurity. Owens ended up doing stunt races. He would race horses. He would race cars. Eventually, though, he did become a PR man, a motivational speaker, somebody who was able to um, make a living from his his Olympic record. I really liked one thing he said about uh, jogging, though. He was asked as an older man whether he still enjoyed jogging. And he said, quote, I don't jog because I can't run flat-footed. <laughs> it just shows you how fast somebody would be if you can only run on your toes. Despite Owen's story, though, and the victories of the other black U.S. medalists and the competition of Jewish athletes from the U.S. and Europe, Hitler clearly saw the Olympics as a victory. The closing ceremony featured Beethoven, searchlights, and blondes dressed in white to represent competing nations. German athletes won the most medals of anyone, and the organization of the event was praised highly. Yeah, they actually won the most medals by far, too, almost double that of the U.S., which was number two. Um, And it did work in the PR sense, too. The New York Times even said that the games put Germany, quote, back in the fold of nations. And Hitler thought that things had gone so well and that everybody approved of the game so highly. He fully expected that after the 1940 games, which were already slated to take place in Tokyo, the Olympics would take place in Berlin forever. There wouldn't be any other cities that hosted the Olympics. Uh, Just Berlin year after after year after year. It reminded me a little bit of our early discussion of the modern Olympics and and Paris and Athens and debates about where the Olympics should happen. But that's a a bold opinion. (laughs) A lot of confidence there. Some people, though, saw how hoodwinked the world had been during this time and how a major opportunity to censure the Nazi regime before the war was basically lost. Others feared the end of the charade. U.S. Ambassador to Germany, William E. Dodd, wrote that Jews were expecting the end of the games with fear and trembling. Just two days after the games ended, the head of the Olympic Village, who was of Jewish descent, was dismissed from military service and killed himself. Yeah, so so people were afraid what the back-to-business kind of... Um, regime would be like. Now that the world had gone home, what was regular life going to be like? One example of of this kind of return to normal being intolerable for people's Gretel Bergman, the high jumper who we mentioned earlier, who was used as an example of how Germans were including Jews on their teams and then was ultimately booted off the team at the last minute. She emigrated to the United States just a year after the games. Ultimately, only two Jewish athletes competed for Germany. One was Rudy Ball. He competed in ice hockey in the Winter Games back when the country would host both both the winter and the summer games. The other was Helene Meyer, who was a half Jewish blonde. Uh, You know, she was considered to look very Aryan. Uh, She competed in fencing. She actually had already fled Germany before the games, but came back to compete, saluted Hitler, ultimately left again. I think you can look at a lot of these athlete stories. And again, the, the Holocaust Memorial Museum has a really sad page talking about 
a lot of Olympians from as early as the first, the 1896 games and their fate during the Holocaust. Um, but a bigger picture thing to think about, too, is that this was the last Olympics for a very long time. The, of course, the 1940 Tokyo Games didn't happen. Right. The 1944 Games didn't happen. So it's not on the same scale, of course, as people losing their lives. But one thing I can't help thinking about is that your professional athletic window is pretty narrow. Um, and if you weren't able to compete in this games, whether because you protested it, you boycotted it, or you weren't allowed to, it very likely would have been your very last chance because you weren't going to get another one for 12 years. Bringing it back to athletics a little bit again, like you said, um, we have a quote from Owens on preparing to run the 100 meter. He said, it's a nervous, terrible feeling. You feel as you stand there as if your legs can't carry the weight of your body. Your stomach isn't there and your mouth is dry and your hands are wet with perspiration. And you begin to think in terms of all those years that you've worked. In my particular case, the 100 meters, as you look down the field, 109 yards, two feet away, and recognizing that after eight years of hard work, this is the point that I had reached and that all was going to be over in 10 seconds. Those are the great moments in the lives of individuals. So I thought that was a good way to wrap this up because it is... An individual story as much as it is a story of 49 countries coming from around the world to compete in Berlin. Yeah, and you can't really separate those stories. You can't tell Owen's story without telling the story of these very unique games and, and what he had to go through. So we realized. Time. Yeah, so which is why we did that. But if you have any other sports stories, any stories of famous Olympians that you'd like to us to talk about or that you'd like to share with us, maybe something about Owen's life that we didn't include today that you want to point out, feel free to write us. We're at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com. You can also look us up on Facebook and we're on Twitter at Mist in History. And we have loads of Olympic content still coming out, I think, in one article that you could check out if you want to learn about a few more of these individual stories is five amazing Olympic athletes. You can search for that on our homepage at www.house stuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class. 
Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.